Acts chapter 1, and uh, I want to read for you verses 1 through 11. We're going to begin a study uh, in the book of Acts. Not necessarily going to cover every verse in the book of Acts, but I want to work through the book of Acts as a means of increasing our understanding of what it is for us to be the body of Christ, the church of Christ. And so, I think you'll be encouraged by this text this morning. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke writes, In my former book. How many of you know what Luke's former book was? Okay, that was too obvious. Alright, Luke is the writer of the book of Luke and the writer of Acts. Okay? So in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up into heaven after receiving instructions through the Holy Spirit, or had given instructions, I'm sorry, to the, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that He had chosen. After His suffering, He showed Himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift or, pro- or what, wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that is to indicate a superior washing or coming on them. Something greater than the baptism of John is the presence of the indwelling Spirit of God. So when they met together, they asked Him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. Now don't miss that picture. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky. The idea is they were staring as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Why are you staring? This same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. The implication is what? Don't stand here staring. Get on with the work that causes His coming to occur. Okay, do the work of building the kingdom. And then He will come. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in every nation and then the end will come. So, as we come into the book of Acts, we realize a couple of things. We realize that Luke wrote a two-volume work. The gospel of Luke... And then the book of Acts. He writes it to a man whose name is Theophilus. In the book of Luke, he calls him, O most excellent Theophilus. Okay, which is an indication that at some level, Theophilus was an educated man and probably a man of means and influence in his world. Luke is a a non-Jewish writer of the gospel. And he writes to a man named Theophilus whose name means lover of God. 
He calls him most excellent Theophilus, that he is a, a man of learning, he is a man of impact, bearing, and influence. And Luke is seeking to communicate to him a very simple message. That message is about the work of Christ. So in Acts 1, 1 it says that Luke wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do. Right, so what does Luke give us? He gives us an account of the beginning of the work of Christ. The beginning of the work of Christ ends with what? The ascension of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Same story is recorded there as at the beginning of Acts. So he goes through his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, ascends to the right hand of the Father, but his work is still incomplete. So the book of Luke is the story of Jesus that is recorded with eyewitnesses, Luke 1 before says, that many undertook to draw up an account of the things that had been fulfilled. Luke 1, 2, Luke, can I say that there are many eyewitnesses of the work of Christ. He says, I carefully investigated and gave you an orderly account so that you may know the certainty or the exact truth of what Jesus Christ did. So Luke can say, as he wrote the Gospel of Luke, that he appealed to certain witnesses and certain authorities, he conducted interviews, and he's giving to Theophilus an account that should steal him in his convictions about the work of Christ. Now, when he comes into the book of Acts, you have to ask, why does Luke keep writing? Okay, and here's why. The Gospel of Luke is the story of the work of Christ. The book of Acts is the story of of the beginning of the church. Apart from it, we would not have a biblical account of the history of the early church. So, Luke is the gospel, the story of Jesus. Acts is the biblical history of the early church. It is a historical narrative that is written to have an impact on Luke. He gives him convincing proofs, life-changing proofs. In other words, it's not merely information. It's truth that is given to have an impact, an effect on those that are hearing it. Now, how do we title the book of Acts? In most Bibles, it's called the Acts of what? Of the Apostles. Okay? Now, that's, that's just a name that's given to the book. It's not part of the original writing. What is a better name for the book of Luke? Or a book of Acts, I'm sorry. What's a better name for the book of Acts? better name for the book of Acts is this. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through human agents. Okay, it's what God does through His personal presence, but always working through personal human agencies. Folks, God wants to build His church. God is building His church. How is He doing it? He's doing it through human agencies, through people that surrender to His work and purpose. So as we come into this book, what we need to realize is this is the story of the early church that the Holy Spirit is building through human agencies. He uses people. So one of the foundational truths of church life is this. God uses people to complete the work that Jesus Christ began. Luke, the beginning of the work. Acts, the ongoing work of God. Now, the overview of the text looks something like this. Okay, in verse 3, it says that Jesus... <clears throat> After his suffering, that is his death, burial, and resurrection, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
Or so the Gospel of Acts begins. And I could do a whole separate sermon on this topic. But I just want to note it. Alright, that the Gospel or the book of Acts begins with the fact that Jesus gave to His apostles many convincing proofs. You can go back to Luke chapter 24 and list a number of the convincing proofs that Jesus gave of His resurrection. He appeared to the women. For the men that wasn't good enough, so He appeared to the men. Alright, on the road to Emmaus, He appears to two. He appears in the upper room and they are frightened. He says to them, touch me, see me. And they don't get it, they're still frightened. So what does He say? Give me a piece of fish. And he eats the piece of fish in their presence. And then, in a sense, saying what? Can a spirit do that? What is he doing? He's giving them convincing proofs that he, in fact, did die in his suffering, but has now risen again as the glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why does he give them these proofs? Okay, can I give you the very simple answer? Because they needed them. After the crucifixion of Christ, not one of the disciples went to the upper room and said, you know what, let's stay here and wait for him because he's coming back. Not one of them did that. What did they do? They hid for fear. Not anticipating the resurrection. Why? It for them was unbelievable truth. So the only explanation for the disciples, for the apostles, catching on fire to do the work of God, that is, is that in fact he was risen. And so as Luke starts his writing in the book of Acts, he says he showed himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was, in fact, alive and had fulfilled his word. Paul would later say to Festus and Agrippa, in response to this statement from them, they say to Paul, Paul, you're crazy. You're crazy. Your learning has made you mad. You know what Paul says to them? He says, I know that I am not insane. Most excellent testus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. And the king, Agrippa, is familiar with these things. So I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. For it was not done in a corner. Now what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that the explanation, the only explanation for the thriving growth of the early church is the fact that Jesus was alive. And so Jesus gave them, in His gracious way, many convincing proofs. And those convincing proofs are the logical explanation for the start and miraculous expansion of the church of God in the, early, in the first century. Now, verses 4 and 5, he says to them, wait in Jerusalem. So that's, so there's convincing proofs. And then he says to them, excuse me, he says, I want you to wait for the gift that I promised to you. So they're waiting in Jerusalem, verses 4 and 5. 6 to 8, what do we find? We find the commissioning of the disciples to go into how much of the world? All the world. What are they thinking? They're thinking provincial Local, geographic, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, the kingdom of God is going global. The work of the gospel is going global throughout the world. So that's the commissioning to a global mission. And then the last thing that happens, it's mentioned in verse 2. Okay, notice what it says. It says, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> whom he had chosen, he was taken up into heaven. 
Okay, then verse 11. Or I'm sorry, verse 10. Now verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. So if you say to me, what is the... What is the dominant theme of verses 1 to 11 of Acts? What is the dominant theme of the introduction to the book of Acts? Here's what I would say it is. I believe it is the ascension of Christ. I believe it's mentioned at the beginning of the discussion. It's mentioned again in verse 10 at the end of the discussion. Central to the start of the church is what? It is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a word that we use often. Because we don't have people that ascend to thrones, okay? We inaugurate a president, we don't ascend him to a throne. Okay, so what does ascension mean? Okay? Now, at one level, it means this. At a very basic, it means to be lifted up. Okay? So, does that mean that because I happen to be standing on a step that's about 10 inches higher than you, that I am, in a sense, above you? Well, geographically, physically, I'm above you. But I'm not better than you by virtue of being in an airplane flying over top of you or having climbed a mountain looking down on you and say, I am ascended over you. But with Jesus, what does this ascension, this being taken up into heaven, mean? And I believe this is what it means. I believe it means that Jesus has risen to receive a place of authority. Hence, this is the idea. He ascends to a throne Okay, he is put in a place of authority over all things. And from that place of authority, what does he do? He is building his church. That's the work that he's involved in. So he is ascended, and here's what's sad. We give a lot of attention to the birth, to the life, to the death, and the resurrection of Christ. But what do we tend not to give much attention to? To the ascension of Christ, that he is enthroned in the heavens. He is placed high above all things in the heavens. That is the the glory of this text. And I believe it is the key theme that this text moves forward to. And what it does is, it captures the essence of what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, His suffering to pay the price for our sin, what happens? Wherefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Okay, so here's what I want us to focus our attention on this morning, okay? What difference does the ascension make to us as the church? It's it's obviously Luke's focal point. The question I want us to ask this morning is, okay, what difference does it make? How does the ascension of Jesus affect my life? What is the the message? What are the, the, the challenges that come out of it? And I think that we can say there's something like this, okay? From verse 1, I think we can say this. The ascension means that the church is called by Jesus to continue His work. Okay, He goes, but He leaves us here to do what? To continue what He had done. So He would say to His disciples in John 20, what you saw Me do, go and do it. And do it in all the world. So first it means that He calls us to continue His work. He left us here to complete the work that the Gospel of Luke says He began to do 
and teach. Now folks, if you meditate on that for a moment, that is powerful. He ascends, and in his ascending, he gives to his disciples a commission to continue his work. Now, here's what's fascinating. As he says he's going to send the Spirit with obviously a purpose of impacting them and empowering them to be witnesses, to speak the Word of God with conviction, the disciples come to him with a question. This question is found in verse 6. Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Right? And some of you are like, He's just been with you 40 days. He's been talking about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all nations, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And what's their question? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? I love how Jesus flips this around. Okay, here's how Jesus flips the question around. Are you going to restore the kingdom? That's their question. Jesus' question to them in Acts 1.8 is what? This question is, will you build my kingdom? Will you continue the work that I called you to do? Verse 8, what's he going to say? He's going to say, look, my kingdom is not geographic. It's not national. It's not about politics. My kingdom is about changing lives. And so he says in verse 8 then, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, my representatives, my spokespeople. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost ends of the earth. What were the disciples doing? They were focused on a political kingdom, on a geographic, territorial idea. And Jesus is seeking to break them out of this idea of being obsessed with Jewish nationalism, because now the work of God has sprung way beyond the borders of Jerusalem. Into Samaria, the mixed areas. Unto where? The uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus came to do. Folks, if we sit down and think about this, He saves you for what purpose? And leaves you here for what purpose? So that you would continue the work that He began. That's His purpose. He ascends up into heaven so that He might impart to us the power of His Spirit so that we will do what He did. See, that's the the glory and that's the challenge of the Gospel. So sometimes we're wanting Jesus to do what we want Him to do. And you know what He says to us? He says, will you do what I want you to do? Will you now restore the kingdom? No. In fact, it's none of your business, disciples. Here's what's your business. Will you build the kingdom? Will you take the message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth so that then the kingdom can come? Matthew 24, 14. So He seeks to kind of move them from a local and global perspective to a gospel-sharing perspective that is global in its reach. So he, his ascension means that He has called us as His representatives to continue the work that He began. Which is what? Take the gospel. Folks, can I just say this in a political season? Okay? It fascinates me, and I mean this for myself, that I'm so much quicker to talk about the things of this kingdom rather than His kingdom. You can engage me in a conversation about that at the drop of a hat. Okay, just push one of my buttons. Okay, and we are so quick and so ready to engage in discussion about a kingdom that will pass away. Alright, the United States is not forever. It's not. But the work of Christ is. And that's the work that He wants us to be. 
obsessed with. Now, is it okay for us to be concerned about the work of our nation? The answer is absolutely yes. We are the soul of the earth and the light of the world. But it should not be our primary obsession. And with the 24-hour cycle, 24 cycle of news about this kingdom, okay, about this world, we can lose sight of the kingdom and what God is doing through the gospel of Christ. Now, in, the next, in verse 4, he, he gives them this command. He says to them, I want you to not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the, for the gift that my Father promised which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Spirit. Now what is Jesus saying here? Okay, He's saying, wait in Jerusalem. The question has to be, why would He tell them to wait? He just gave them a commission, go into all the world, that's where He's going, but He says, wait here. Why? Okay, and here's, I think, is the second truth of the ascension. The ascension means that Jesus must and does, in fact, empower His people to continue His work. So I'm called to do it. But guess what? In my flesh, I don't find myself doing the work of Christ. I'm weak. I'm unable. I feel inadequate. I can't break down the doors that need to be broken down. He tells us to wait. Why? So that we can receive the enabling power of the Spirit that is essential to effective Christian life and ministry. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. That's what he says in John 14 through 16. I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you in power so that you can go and do this work of reaching your world with the power of Christ. He enables His followers by the Spirit to finish His work. Luke 24 and 49, here's what He says. To the disciples, I am going to send to you what the Father promised. But wait here in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Then you will be my witnesses. Let's see, the call of the church is an intimidated, intimidating calling, isn't it? It's not easy to share your faith. But it is a glorious thing to share your faith. Not when you're doing it in the flesh. But when you are seeking to do it in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus ascends so that he might empower his church to do the work of the ministry. Now, I want to turn your attention in light of this to a fascinating text. After the resurrection, Jesus meets with Mary. And what happens? Mary throws, she throws her arms around his feet. And what is she doing? She's hanging on to him. Why? In the death of Christ, what had they lost? They lost his personal presence. And so Mary is like, hmm. what is she saying? Huh, letting go. I am not letting go. I want you to think about what Jesus says in light of the promise of the coming of the Spirit. He says, Mary, stop clinging to me. Now, People have gone off on this text and talked about all the ways in which Mary, touching him physically before he ascends to heaven, makes him impure, etc., etc. Not true. He invites people to touch him prior to the ascension. He asks them to touch him. He asks them to eat with me. He asks them to look at him. But he says to Mary, stop clinging to me. You've got to say to yourself, 
you would think that that would be honorable. That she would say, I want you to be with me. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. He says, stop clinging to me. Let me go. And when I ascend to my Father's presence, what am I going to do? I'm going to pour out the promise of my Spirit into your life. In my physical body, I can only be with you person to person, one at a time. But I'm going to come to you in a way that is much more powerful and much more glorious than that. So in John 16, 7, Jesus would say to His disciples, it is to your benefit that I what? Go away. Because if I go away, what am I going to do? I'm going to send my Spirit to you. And He's going to take a personal presence in each of your lives and enable you to fulfill the work of the kingdom. This to me is an amazing, amazing thing. Mary, why are you clinging to me? Because I don't want to let you go. Mary, it is to your benefit if I go away. Because if I go away, I will pour out the Spirit of God upon you. And then you will become my witnesses. See, verse 8 helps us to understand what's going on here. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples? What's the rest of the verse say? You will become my what? My witnesses. My representatives. Here's what's fascinating to me. In this statement, you will become my witnesses is a promise. It's not a possibility that we are the witnesses of Christ. It is a promise. It is our God-given calling. It is our God-given task to be His witnesses. So Jesus says this, I'm going to go, it is to your benefit that I do, and when I come upon you, you will be my witnesses. So as you study through the book of Acts, here's what you're going to see. On 39 occasions, the word witness is used to describe those that went forth in the power of the Spirit. Which starts to help us to understand what is the ongoing work of God that Jesus Christ is empowering us to do. You know what it is? It's to take the good news of the gospel to the unreached peoples of the earth. Whether they live right next door to you, whether they sit next to you at work, whether they go to school to you, He has sent you there to be His representative. His Spirit comes with the purpose of transforming us from recluse and quiet about Jesus to being expressive and talkative about Jesus. And He does it with power. Okay, He hits us in a way that causes us to become something that we can never become. And vital to understanding this is this truth. The work of going out and fulfilling the commission of Christ to the unreached parts of the world is a cooperative effort. And you say, Tim, why is that important? Here's why I think it's important. Because as you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus did not choose stellar, amazingly gifted people. Well, what did He do? He chose... He chose people like us who would trust in the power of His Spirit and accomplish uncommon things through common people. That's the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses. I will enable you. I will fill you with the desire and a passion and a joy to share this truth with those around us. And it's in this sense then in Matthew 16 that Jesus can say something like this. I will build my church. How does He do it? He does it through the outpouring of His Spirit into individual lives, largely ordinary, common people. And through them He does extraordinary and amazing things. I mean, that, that 
That's what he does. That's why Jesus says it's better for you if I go. Because when I'm here, I'm in this body. I'm limited in terms of my presence. But if I go and send the Spirit that the Father promised, you will have my presence with you wherever you go. And I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's his promise. Absolutely amazing and glorious. It also means this. It also means that Jesus is the ruling and returning King. When you go to verses 9 through 11, you find that this ascension leaves us here for a period of time. But that ascension into heaven that leaves us doing work is followed by what? A return of Christ. Okay, I mean, this, this is the, the glory of this text. After he said this, verse 9, he was taken up into heaven from their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. What does it mean that a cloud hid him from their sight? And when you read the idea of a cloud, does that jog anything in your thinking from the Old Testament? It ought to. Okay, when Israel was led out of the wilderness, what led them by day? A pillar of cloud. When the tabernacle was blessed by the presence of God, what came on it? A pillar of cloud. The very presence of God. Daniel chapter 7 says, The Son of Man comes sitting on the clouds. On Mount Sinai, a cloud descended God's very presence. Mountain of Transfiguration. A cloud. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Well, who does that tell you Jesus is? He's not just another man. He is, in fact, King of kings and Lord of lords. And what is, what is God the Father saying to the disciples as they watch Jesus ascending and a cloud comes and receives Him, envelops Him? He's saying, this is my Son. He is the ruler of the universe. It is, it is in fact, a glorious truth that He is the one like the Son of Man. He is the one who is, in fact, the ruling King of the world. And that's why Philippians 2, after the suffering of Christ, says that God highly exalted Him and gave Him a name that is above every name. Now folks, what that means is the one who is the ruling King of the universe is your Savior. Therefore, you don't have anything that you must worry about. He's the Sovereign. He's in absolute control of all things. But he is also the returning king. Verses 10 and 11 says, While they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? And if I was them, I would have said, We never saw anything like that. What just happened? They're stunned. They're staring. They're like, he just did that. And they're, they're, they're astonished. They're amazed. What does that mean? That this man who lived and died and rose again and was taken up in the clouds, evidencing that he is in fact God. But these two men come with a greater message that reaches down the road. Why are you staring into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw Him go. That is the hope of the early church. 
Right? I mean, that's the hope of the Christian church. One day the one who came and lived and died and rose again, who ascended into heaven, will one day do what? Come again, and when he comes, what will happen? The Lord's prayer will be fulfilled. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth. The new heaven and new earth that is the glory of the work of God. Folks, this is an amazing and powerful statement. The one who is ascending is enveloped in the clouds. He is God. One day, He comes again. And when He comes, His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He will bring a new heaven and a new earth. And people from every tongue, nation, and tribe will be part of that because that is the nature of the proclamation of the gospel that goes to the world around us. He is the ruling and He is the returning King. Luke 21 says, One day, at that time in the future, they will see the Son of Man coming, how? In the clouds. As folks, here's the question I put before you this morning. What then do I have to worry about? Okay, this, this truth that Jesus is the ruling and reigning King means that Romans 8.28 is true for every Christian. That He, as the ruling and reigning King, causes and controls all things, causes them to work together for the good of those who love Him, who are called by Him. Okay, so, so as His children, who do we serve? We serve the ruling and reigning King of the universe. Therefore, we shouldn't be characterized by panic but by deep and abundant hope and joy. And let's just all be honest with each other this morning and say this. We all have a tendency to hit the panic button. We all know what it is to be thrown off uh, the tracks of life by the circumstances that we face. What do we need to remember? We need to remember the ascension. The ascension is the promise that as He goes, He goes as the ruling and reigning King who pours out His Spirit to infill us and enable us to live a life for Him. But one day, He will come in the same way that you saw Him go. And He will be with us, the Word of God says, forever. Glorious and amazing truth. And and Paul would later say this. Paul would say that in the future, for Him, there is laid up a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to Him on that day, and not to Him only, but unto everyone who loves His appearing. His being manifest. The disciples see Him go and they're watching and they're watching. And the, and the men in white come and they say, hey, go get busy. Why are you staring? There's work to be done. And they go and we're part of this expanding work of the kingdom in the power of the Spirit. But one day, this work will end. And one day, everything that is wrong will be made right by the power of God. Folks, that's what the return of Christ means. That's what the ascension anticipates, is that one day there will be the second coming of Christ that He talked about, and He will establish a perfect kingdom in which He will rule and reign in righteousness. And all of our fears and all our concerns will be wiped out, and all of the injustice that troubles us as we just watch the news, you see what's happening in Syria, in the city of Ham, and your heart breaks. You say, oh, Father, Come. Relieve that pain. Relieve that distress. The ascension says that He's on the throne. He is keeping a record of all things. And one day when He comes, 
all rights will be made, or all wrongs will be made right. That's the promise of the ascension. He defeated death. If He defeated death and ascended, He can handle anything that you and I are facing. That's the joy of the ascension. And it means one more thing that leads us into the Lord's table. It means that Jesus is our advocate. He is our legal representative at the throne of His Father in heaven. And I, I want you to I want you to think about this truth as we come to the Lord's table. Because it is indeed, to me, very glorious territory. He ascended. Where does He sit? He sits at the Father's right hand. You know what the Bible says on numerous occasions? He is ever living to make intercession for us. For what? For my sin. For my tendency to fail. He ever lives to apply His blood to all of my brokenness. He ever lives to forgive all of my sin. And so the writer of Hebrews would, would then say this, via the ascension, I want you to notice the connection, Hebrews 4, 14-16. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, and what does he say? Who has gone into heaven. Okay, do you see the connection? The ascension of Christ puts him in a place that he is able to serve us in a way that is better than Mary clinging to him. Do you see? Mary's clinging to him would not help her a lot. She thought it would. He was capable of amazing things, but he's capable of better things in this place. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, that's exactly the terminology of Acts 1. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. You know why he says hold firmly? Because life tends to want to break your grip on the gospel. Life and its struggles tends to want to break your grip on the hope that you have. It can cause you to despair. That's what the evil one tries to do. To spread the seeds of doubt and fear. Of anxiety. The exalted Christ intends to do what? To kill your fear. He intends to kill your anxiety. And to set you free from the guilt of your sin. That's what He's doing. He ever lives to make intercession. He goes on to say, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace, which is where? In heaven at His Father's right hand. How should we approach it? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy, which is the removal of what we deserve and grace to help us in time of need. As a result of what? As a result of the fact that He ascended. And in that ascended role, He works out all things for us. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's children, His elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? Jesus Christ who died? More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God as a result of what? Inner of, of His ascension. What is He doing there? He is interceding for us. So that every time we fail, the blood of Christ is raised by the Savior and He strikes it from the record as we confess our sin. He ever 
lives. To apply His cross work to my sin so that I can be forgiven and given the hope of life with Him. Probably the clearest example of this truth of Christ as our advocate in heaven, welcoming His children home, forgiving them and cleansing them from all their sin, ever living to make intercession for them, is the story of Stephen. Stephen is rejected by the religious establishment of his day in Acts chapter 7. They come against him with strong criticism. When they heard what he was saying, here's what the text says, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, did what? He looked up into heaven. Why? Because that's where his Savior is. That's where his hope is. So the ascension does what? For Stephen, at the point of his death, here's what he says. He looks up into heaven and he sees the glory of God. That's the Shekinah. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I love what Stephen says. Stephen says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven. When did Stephen see that? You know when he saw it? When the court of earth was giving him ultimate rejection. The court of heaven was giving him acceptance. You know what that means? Here's what it means. It means that the rejection of people ultimately is inconsequential. But oh how we fear it. Oh, how we fear condemnation. Oh, how we fear rejection. Not Stephen. You know what he said? He says, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man not sitting at the Father's right hand, but standing. And that is powerful truth. He ever lives to make intercession. This idea of standing from the throne was the idea of welcoming home. It was a sign of respect and love for Stephen that motivated him to stand firm in the greatest trial of his life when the ultimate act of man came against him, death. Jesus stood as a result of the ascension and received him into his presence. That truth of the ascension of Christ mitigates and neutralizes the pain of a fallen world. And folks, look, let's just be honest. There is a lot of pain in our world. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot that a lot of people sitting in this room go through on a regular basis. Here's what you need to know. Jesus Christ, who lived the life you couldn't live and who died the death you should have died, did that to pay the price for your sin. He is seated at the Father's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And He ever lives there to apply the benefits of His cross work to your life so that even if the world is condemning you, the blood of Christ will forgive you. He ascended after His resurrection, which is powerful. He ascended to ever live to make intercession for us. Therefore, we don't need to worry because one day He is coming and when He comes, He's going to make right all of the wrongs that trouble us. And it means that all of our sin can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. 
And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, here's my challenge to us as a church. The Spirit of God comes to enable us to see the glory of these things. He comes to enable us to be His witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. The danger is this. The danger is that we by our sin can grieve and quench the Spirit of God. And so the Lord's table is meant to do what? It's meant to give us an opportunity to look honestly at our hearts and lives. To say, God, am I being sensitive to Your indwelling Spirit? Am I being responsive to the work of Your Spirit? And if, as you ask those questions, you say, no, I can identify this sin in my life over here. The purpose of the Lord's table is to bring you from a place of grieving and quenching the Spirit to a place of pleasing the Spirit and being a clean vessel through which He can work. And the way that we move from being guilty to clean is through the blood of Christ. We approach the throne of God and we say, God, here's a sin in my life. Here's something I need to confess. Cleanse me. Wash me. Make me whiter than snow. And use me in the power of Your Spirit for Your glory. Father, as we come to the table this morning, 